Alright, before we carry on further into the Mass itself, I want to bring to you another brief teaching by Father Alexander Schmemann from his book, For the Life of the World, describing some things about liturgy, about the Mass to us in its reality. He writes this, and it's a number of par- it's a couple different paragraphs here, so bear with me, but really drink these words in. It's, they're very important for us to get. He writes, The liturgy of the Eucharist is best understood as a journey or procession. It is the journey of the church into the dimension of the kingdom. We use this word dimension because it seems the best way to indicate the manner of our sacramental entrance into the risen life of Christ. Color transparencies come alive when viewed in three dimensions instead of two. The presence of the added dimension allows us to see much better the actual reality of what has been photographed. In very much the same way, Our entrance into the presence of Christ is an entrance into a fourth dimension which allows us to see the ultimate reality of life. It is not an escape from the world. Rather, it is the arrival at the vantage point from which we can see more deeply into the reality of the world. The journey begins when Christians leave their homes and beds. They leave, indeed, their life in this present and concrete world. A sacramental act is already taking place. For they are now on their way to constitute the church. Or, to be more exact, to be transformed into the church of God. They have been individuals... And now they've been called to come together in one place to bring their lives, their very world with them, and to be more than what they were, a new community with a new life. It's an incredible painting of the liturgy. Let's examine just a few things about this before we proceed in the Mass. He's basically saying that through liturgy, we all journey... From the three-dimension physical, the material, it doesn't go away. We don't escape from it, but we bring it together and by the grace of God, we come into that eternal kingdom of God. And all of a sudden, by the experience of that kingdom and the king of that kingdom, the way we see all things changes. The way we view ourselves, the way we view our brother and sister in Christ, the way that we view this world, the way that we perceive our circumstances, all of it gets changed because by the grace of God, we have now been ushered into the eternal kingdom of God. That's what he's trying to teach us in that first part. And through this journey, we come to see things by that grace, from the perspective of God. And how many times have you heard me say when we're struggling in circumstances, whether it's fears or confusion or brokenness, whatever it may be, I always give you the example 
of Jesus walking on the water, right? And calling out Peter to join him. And remember Peter's perspective. As his eyes were fixed upon Christ, he remained above everything causing him fear. But once he set his gaze toward the problems themselves, making them his God in the moment, he sinks and he sinks and he's drowning. But then when he casts his eyes back, our Lord helps him back up. This is what's happening, according to Father Schmemann, and in reality, in the Mass. Our gaze becomes shifted. It starts shifting from our time of preparation where we're consecrating ourselves to go into that kingdom, to experience the living God. While we prepare ourselves, our perspective is changing. While we make our ascent in the liturgy, our perspective is continually changing by the grace of God. And when we receive from Him in that pinnacle event, the Eucharist, we are even being transformed. The Eucharist, the liturgy, the Mass is one of God's greatest gifts to the church that we might receive life and His life entirely. And all of this is happening as heaven and earth join together and we're knit together rather timelessly in the Mass. All by God's design to share Himself with us that we might experience Him, worship Him, and be transformed by the experience. Okay. I'm going to, throughout these sessions, not every week, as I haven't done, but from time to time, continue to bring a little bit of those incredible teachings of folks like Father Alexander Schmemann and the Fathers on worship, on liturgy. Because not only do we need to learn in the Mass why we do what we do and how to experience God, but we need to understand why it's been given to us. All the things that God is doing for us and on our behalf as we do this great gift we call the Mass. Okay, so last week. Last week we covered the introit, which is sung by the choir. And we talked about the fact that the introit, much like the collect of the day that we'll actually get into today, the introit as it's sung by the choir, we are getting sung over us the theme and focus of the day. And the encouragement is, don't let the words go over you empty. Engage the words that are being sung over you by the choir. Join into those words and let God teach you and shift your gaze to the proper focus and remembrance even in the singing of the introit. From the introit, we looked at the collect of purity. That prayer where we join with the priest. Even though you're not mouthing the words, you're joining in the meaning and the lifting up of the prayer in your own soul. And remember, the collect of purity is that prayer that acknowledges that God is fully present among us and we are utterly exposed in front of Him. There is nothing that is unknown to our God as we begin our time of worship. And it's a call to accept that fact. It's a call to embrace that fact. The collect of purity as we pray it is a call to us to stop pretending like Adam and Eve that they could hide from the God who wanted to heal them. But to live a life 
in full knowledge and to worship Him in the Mass with the full knowledge that there's nothing He doesn't know. All of my ugliness, all of my sinfulness, He inspects it thoroughly, knows every bit of it, so we offer it to Him for healing, for transformation. We come and we bring ourselves to Him, as we'll hear even later in the liturgy. After the collect of purity, immediately we have the summary of the law by Christ. Love God, love man with the love of God. And we know that when we examine ourselves according to that law, we will, not might, find ways that we have not walked by the grace of God to love God and love man. We have failed. We have all sinned. We have all fallen short. Not a one of us is different. And so the law is pronounced to us for two reasons. Two, if we didn't know already the the ways that we have not fulfilled the law by grace, that we come to that knowledge by the inspection of the Holy Spirit, but it's also said over us the summary of the law to exhort us, to encourage us, to by the grace of God be like Him. Immediately after the summary of the law, we have the Kyrie. What better thing sometimes after self-examination than to cry out with our hearts, Lord, have mercy, Lord, have mercy, Lord, have mercy, which is the very thing that our Lord longs to give. And that's where we concluded last week. Give it a listen if you weren't here to get more details that might help you in worship. So we come today after the Kyrie, after the crying out for mercy, and after the receiving. Because you've you got to get this. We don't just sing out for mercy that we don't expect to obtain, not because we deserve it, but because of the very nature of God, who when we come to Him in honest repentance, longs to pour out His mercy doesn't shy away from it. Oh, you're just not good enough. I can't give it to you today. That's humanity. That's not God. When we cry out with authentic repentance, having been led by the Holy Spirit to that point, not only can we sing out of the mercy of God, longing for it in the Kyrie, but in the very singing, we might experience it. In the moments where we lift up the song we might experience the very mercy of God. And so having experienced that mercy, we take a turn in the liturgy from self-examination, crying out for mercy to great praise. The Gloria. The Gloria is found on page 17 of your booklets. It's earlier on. They're not 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. Again, I've said that. But on page 17. The Gloria in Excelsis Deo. Glory be to God on high. Father Michael Kaiser, in his book, Offering the Lamb, rightly points out that there are basically three sections to the Gloria, to this great hymn. So let's have a look at each. We start with the first section. Consider the words. Glory be to God on high, and on earth peace, goodwill towards man. We praise Thee, we bless Thee, we glorify Thee, we give thanks to Thee for Thy great glory. O Lord God, Heavenly King, God the Father Almighty. That first line, glory be to God on high and on earth, peace, goodwill towards men. Where does that come from? Christmas. Christmas. The Gospel. The announcing by the angelic host to the shepherds out in the fields. 
where to go and find the Christ. And they experience this great resounding praise. Glory be to God on high and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. Some translations of this are horrendous. Because they'll be translated, glory be to God on high and on earth peace among men. And when you say peace among men, you're talking about peace between mankind. Peace between each of us. Not that that's not part of the kingdom of God. I want you to hear that. But that's not what's being proclaimed to the shepherds. And that's not what we're singing praise over when we sing the Gloria to God. Glory be to God on high and on earth. He has issued forth His peace through the Son, Jesus Christ, making peace between us when we could never deserve such a peace. I sent My Son to wash away your sins, to send the Holy Spirit, to join yourself back to Me. Glory be to God on high, because that's the peace that has been, God has willed towards man. No more separation, symbolically represented in the reality of the temple veil being torn in two. No more separation. Peace is given to us. Peace. Always the desire of God. Peace between Him and us. From there we move... In fact, Father Michael points it out this way. He said the goodwill that we talk about in that statement, goodwill towards men, originates in God. Of course, He has chosen to reveal the good news of the kingdom to all. But there's a matter of response and acceptance. Not everyone will be in God's kingdom, and here's why. Because they choose not to be. They choose not to accept the peace offering. It is only by their own volition, never God's, that someone is not in the kingdom and experiencing all the benefits therein. And that's what we sing in that portion about the great gift of peace. And then we continue in praise, in response to such a thought, we praise Thee, we bless Thee, we glorify Thee, we give thanks to Thee for Thy great glory, O Lord God, Heavenly King, God the Father Almighty. So, we praise Thee, the act that we do, praise, in thankful response for everything that our God has done on our behalf. And by the way, there I'm not just talking about as if it weren't enough, the saving of our souls, the washing away of our sins. That's certainly enough. Everything God does for us on a daily basis, if we were to be attentive at all of the benefits that He so lavishes upon us in the day, that's why we praise God. We praise Thee. Then it says, we bless Thee. Now this is a fascinating statement. We always pray the Lord bless you, right? You hear that all the time. But now what are we doing? What are, who are we blessing? We are sending blessing to God. We bless you. comes from Psalm 103, same intent, where in Psalm 103 you hear the words, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. 
And so we offer blessing to God. Let my life, let this offering of praise, let my presence here coming to you, God, may it be a blessing to you. Our offering back to God as He has so offered Himself to us. We glorify Thee, we give thanks to Thee for Thy great glory, and then we move to hear a few of the uh, titles, if you will, of God. We say, O Lord God, because He is our Lord, Lord of all things, Heavenly King, He is the King of the Kingdom. When we hear Heavenly King and sing Heavenly King, We know our position, we know His. We bend the knee to the King of Kings. And if we bend the knee to the King of Kings in our worship, practice, physically and spiritually and emotionally, that practice will pay huge dividends in our daily life. When He calls upon us, huh? when He calls us out of that sin that we so love, we're more apt to bend the knee to our King. God the Father Almighty, He is the Heavenly Father who loves us with that perfect fatherhood. And that's just the first section of what we sing in the Gloria. We move to a different focus in the second section. The second section is praise to the Son of God. Listen to the words. O Lord, the only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, O Lord God, Lamb of God, Son of the Father, that takest away the sins of the world, have mercy upon us. Thou that takest away the sins of the world, receive our prayer. Thou that sittest at the right hand of God the Father, have mercy on us. Once again, we're in the threefold calling out for mercy from the Son of God, the very Lamb that was slain, O only begotten Son, Lamb of God, blood shed for us. Have mercy on us. Receive our prayer. You ever thought about what that prayer is? We say, have mercy on us. Receive our prayer. Have mercy on us. It's all the same. What's the prayer we're asking Him to receive? Our hearts cry for mercy. Lord, have mercy. Once again, lifting that up with great expectation out of His love that it might meet us in the moment. Hmm? So that's the second. The third part is a conclusion of praise to the Trinity. For Thou only art holy, Thou only art the Lord, Thou only, O Christ, with the Holy Ghost, art most high in the glory of God the Father. Amen. We sing praise to the Trinity. He alone is holy, perfect, separated above all things. We honor Him with our praise. Christ with the Holy Spirit are equal is what it's saying. Most high with the Father. We're stating our our understanding as given us of the Holy Trinity and praising God for that oneness. Let's talk about praise for just a minute since that's what we're doing with the Gloria. I want to read to you from Psalm 22.3 and this verse we will never fathom the depths of, even though it sounds simple. Psalm 22.3 says this about God and about our praise. It says, You inhabit the praises of your people. God inhabits the praises 
of His people. That word inhabit comes from a Hebrew word yashab. And it literally means to sit and dwell amongst. So what's it saying? When God's people praise their God, our Lord sits among us. Our Lord dwells with us. And He receives. And He loves back. And He finds enjoyment among His people. Isn't that, that almost makes you want to cry. But it's the truth. When God's people come and earnestly and honestly from their very soul begin to worship and praise Him for who He is, He sits among us. He dwells. He makes us His dwelling place. You inhabit your home, don't you? You set it up just like you wanted to. You live in it. That's your place of dwelling. God's people are God's place of habitation when they praise Him. Kind of work in with the crowds that he was among. How do you see? He said, "Is that kind of work in when he was amongst all the crowds?" Tell me what you mean. Well, he seemed to be at, at one of the things that he seemed to be the most uh, very comfortable with was when he was among crowds. Yeah. Mm. He was among. He was among his people. Hmm. Very interesting thought. Very interesting thought. Yeah, he was alone. Uh, he, he had his moments of being solitary, yeah. solitary. But he would go from these moments of prayer and nights right. of prayer to be with the people always. Because think about this: here's God's nature. You're hitting on something of God's nature that does have something absolutely to do with what we're talking about. God's nature is to come and dwell among His people. Look at the Old Testament. He had them set up a tabernacle, the most holy of holy. You know, He set up the temple a certain way, all so that He could dwell, not only among His people, but in the very place where they would offer up praise. Isn't that fascinating? Because God comes to man to save man. That's His nature, to dwell among us. Good thought, good thought. You almost want to sit there and think about that a little bit more, but I'm going to rip the rug out from right underneath you. Okay, so we'll move on. After the praise of the Gloria and lifting up the praise of the Gloria, we arrive at the Collux for that particular day. Okay. Now you heard me talk a little bit in the sermon today about what a collect is. And last week when we talked about the collect of purity, remember that any collect prayer gathers us, our thoughts... Huh? gives us the focus of that particular day and we exercise that non-active participation with our hearts and our minds lifting up through and with the voice of the priest as he prays those collect prayers. Now on any given particular Mass, particularly on Sundays, the numbers of collects can variate how many you actually have in a Mass. On normal Sundays throughout the year, you usually find three collects. You have the collect of the day, 
then you may have two colics for various saints, if that's their saint day, to remember them. Or if there's only one, you may have the collect of the day, the saint, and then what's called a seasonal prayer that they ask the priest to pick out that has to do with that season. So right now we're in the season of Trinity Tide. On those times where it says a seasonal prayer, the priest has the, the uh, permission to pick a Trinity Tide collect. Okay? Other times of the year, for example, when we have martyrs, anytime you have martyrs, um, which we had today, by the way, notice we wore red, St. Luke the Evangelist. Um, when we have martyrs, there are two collects of the day only because the martyrs are that honored. You have the collect of the day to focus our, our, our intent, then you also have that martyr's collect. You also find this in a lot of the Marian Masses when we celebrate various feasts regarding uh, the Lord's Mother Mary, the Virgin Mary. On the High Masses, on the, not High Masses, uh, on the, the uh, 12 great you know, feasts, Easter, Christmas and the like, one Mass. Only that thought and focus is there with us. Easter, Resurrection, Christmas, birth of Christ to bring salvation to the world and so on. So the colics are there we, and we pray those colics together. And again, you heard as far as the collect collecting our thoughts, today was the feast of St. Luke the Evangelist and we had that collect asking God to, put, to manifest His love through us in the same way that He did through St. Luke and through the Gospel and through the life of Christ. So when you hear the colics. Involve yourself in the colics. They are not to be a prayer prayed by a priest alone. The voice, yes. The prayer, no. You pray with the priest. Letting God by His grace focus your hearts as you lift up that prayer for what's coming next. So we have now come to a time in the Mass having prayed the colics that is titled the Liturgy of the Word. Okay? As you might imagine, it's where we hear the Scriptures read in Mass and the homily is given. Now we're going to talk about the Epistle and the Gospel reading today. We'll start on the homily next week. But there are some important things I want us to consider. First of all, in the Mass today, as I stated, we have the Epistle and we have the Gospel read. This was not so in the early church. There was more. Normally there were three readings, including an Old Testament reading. You would have Old Testament, you would have Epistle from, the, from uh, any of the Epistle writers, and then you would have the Gospel read. The Old Testament was considered, and still is considered, that important because as we see, and as they're studying in, in their Sunday schools, the church believed that by knowing the Old Testament, we can learn much about Christ and the church because everything in the Old Testament foreshadows, points to, is a type of the salvation of Christ that He would bring to us. Now, we haven't lost the Old Testament when it comes to worship. We just, it's just been taken out of the Mass. It's in Matins. It's in Vespers, and Vespers, Matins, and the Mass are all connected. 
Each prepares for the other. Vespers at the end of the day, matins just as we awake before worship, before Mass. So we have those Old Testament readings. They're just relegated to the prayer services. But just like those colics, there's something that we have got to be actively doing when we hear Holy Scripture read over us and to us. Remember we talked about, I believe it was last week, the idea of Mary having heard this great announcement of the shepherds as to all they had seen, the angelic strain singing to them, glory to God in the highest. And what did she do with that testimony? She listened and she pondered those things in her heart. She didn't just listen and let them go. She didn't just listen and say, that's nice, thank God. She pondered them. And that word pondered, remember, it's, it's like chewing on food to get every absolute bit of nourishment out of it. Huh? You ever heard the phrase, sucking the morrow out of life? Yeah. Same thing here. When we hear Holy Scripture read... It is not the voice of a reader reading something that's on a page. When Holy Scripture is read, it is God. It is God speaking to you, to me. And I need to posture myself with such attentiveness that that even when the Scripture is being announced, I am praying, Lord, what do you want to tell me? What do you want to feed me with? What do you want to show me? What do you want to show me about myself? Speak to me. And when that Holy Scripture is read, you listen with your soul, your mind, and your body. Because God longs to teach you through His Scripture as He speaks it over you. I'm telling you, the Mass is filled with so many things that we are always in danger of indifference. We're always in danger of numb, in a, in a numb sort of way, going through the routines when God is so longing at any given aspect through the whole thing to touch you, transform you, reveal Himself to you. And so in the reading of Holy Scripture, let us learn a grace-filled attentiveness that we might hear the words of God to us. Ponder. Ponder. Absolutely. Absolutely. I can't tell you how many times that I have either received correction, direction, spiritual nourishment, or just simply comfort when somebody's reading the Holy Scripture. And I almost, there, there are times I just want to stop. We can't, we move on. But God's done His work and please be attentive to God and Holy Scripture. So having the epistle having been read, I'm really excited to talk to you about the gospel procession. Because this is another thing that has the danger of just being physically beautiful. It is physically beautiful. But it's so much more than that. Where does the gospel start from? The altar. 
where does the procession of the gospel move? Where does it go? Into the midst of the people. There is no greater, other than Eucharist, in the Mass, there is no greater vision that you can behold and experience that you can have that points to the incredible nature of the Incarnation like the passage of the Gospel from the altar to come and dwell amongst you, to teach you, to interact with you through that reading. And again, just like we talked about the procession at the beginning of Mass, look at everything that's in the procession. Even as the beautiful singing of the Alleluias are going on, Look at the two torches and remember Jesus Christ, fully human, fully divine, fully human, fully divine. He has come to dwell among us. Look at the cross. He's come to save us. Look at the gospel. He's come to offer peace. God comes, just like you said a minute ago, His nature to come and dwell with man. Let the procession be such a point of worship for you. When you go through and you do the proper motions, signing yourself with the cross and bowing because Christ is in our midst. Not a bunch of material. Christ is in our midst. He is and He ever shall be. And then, Don't stop there, because after the gospel is read and we hear the very teachings of Christ, there's still a procession. God came and dwelled among man. Then what did He do? For the betterment of man, who said, it's better if I do this, Jesus said. He ascends. He goes to the altar. When you see the procession go back from amongst the people to the altar, not in the building, in heaven, you remember that your Christ, your Messiah, has left, having offered the peace, you accepting it, to go and take the place as your great high priest. Always and ever offering His blood. That's His place in heaven. Shed His own blood. He is the great priest, great high priest, as Hebrews talks about, offering His blood on your behalf. And He's about to offer it where? In the Eucharist. So even in the Mass, we have the physical incarnation. Christ dwelling among us, offering us peace through the good news of the Gospel, and then proceeding back up to heaven to keep you forever, if you will so will, if you will bend the knee, and He will keep you forever. Let's stand.